Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So if you would, take out your Bibles, open up to John chapter 3, and we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 22. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22, and I'll be reading to the end of the chapter. After these things, speaking of Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Aenon near Salim, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Well, officially, good morning from that perspective. Um, We've been considering now the the gospel according to John for several weeks, and um, we have considered the fact that the primary purpose of John's writing the book is to prove the deity of Christ. Um, That ultimately is to undergird the unity of the church, which was being fractured um, through Judaizers trying to place um, Gentiles and even the Jewish converts under the law, but also then by Gnosticism, which is um, more from the the pagan side, the Greek side, um, where there was a special knowledge, a special understanding that you had to have in order to attain this level of spirituality. You see that a lot more um, if you, when you read the books, um, the epistles that he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that was especially prevalent there, um, in that, that Greek city. John is living in Ephesus at the time of this writing. He had taken Mary there, Jesus' um, 
earthly mother, and um, had taken her there, and he was living there, and that's from there where he was then sent to the Isle of Patmos, um, where the, the Revelation was written. But so there in Ephesus, and Ephesus was another major port city where there was kind of a melting pot where people would travel through, and so a lot of the, the philosophies of the day were there, and so the church of Ephesus had to deal with a lot of the, the situations. It was kind of like the Pittsburgh used to be called the gateway to the west, and then all of a sudden it grew, and so St. Louis became the gateway to the west. And so that meant that everybody came, in a sense, through Pittsburgh years ago because of the three rivers, right? So they come to Allegheny, they come to Monongahela, they get onto the Ohio River, the Ohio River would take them to the Mississippi, and so they would, that was the west at that time. And so now, all of a sudden, St. Louis became the gateway to the west because they would go on the Missouri River and continue on from that perspective. In a sense, Ephesus was that. It was a, a, a gateway, if you would, to Asia Minor. From If you're coming from Rome and you were traveling and you didn't want to be on the sea the entire time, you would just kind of jump across places or you'd go by, by, by land. And so, so it's important to understand where John is when he's writing these things. And so as we got into chapter 3 last week, um, and so I skipped past that review we've been doing about chapter 1 and 2 and all the things about the deity of Christ that are in chapter 1 and 2. You can go back and look at those things. But in chapter 3, we jump into this conversation that um, John records that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And again, remember that I think the important point of this whole thing is that Nicodemus, when he's coming to Jesus, he's looking for truth. He's, he's trying to, to find out. He's a Jewish leader. Things that are happening tell him that this has got to be Messiah, and yet this doesn't, it's not totally computing with him. He's, not, he's struggling with this. And so he comes at night. He comes at night. He's not during the day. He's coming at nighttime. He's kind of you know, doing it on the sly a little bit. But he comes to Jesus, and, and he, and he kind of wants to know, is this really the guy? And Jesus preempts him and tells him, you must be born again. You can't get to the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So the conversation really is all about this kingdom of God thing. And it, it turns into then the spirit because the reality is that you're not going to enter into the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You need to be born of the water, the flesh, and then born of the spirit. And so he said, that which has been flesh, that which was flesh, is flesh. That which was spirit is spirit. The perfect sense. Remember how it's, you were born in the flesh as a human. You will always be a human. You're not going to morph into something different. You're not going to become an elephant. You may say, I'd like to be a Sunday, but you're never going to look like ice cream and bananas and everything else, right? And so when you're born of the spirit, you can never be unborn of the spirit. And so the concept is there. And then we saw then the agent of that as well, that Jesus is the, ultimately the agent. And the illustration that was given to us was the illustration of the, the, um, the serpent being lifted up in the wilderness and that individuals who were bit by the fiery serpents, in order for them to be delivered from the death, the certain death of that fiery serpent, they literally had to go into the middle of the camp and physically lay their eyes upon that brazen serpent in order for them to be delivered. It was God's plan, period. It had to be done God's way, period. You couldn't stand on the outside of the camp and say, 
I believe that there is a brazen serpent in the, in the middle of the camp that will save me. That's good. It's good that you believe that intellectually. But if you really believed it in your heart, what would you do? You do what God said, and then you get up on your feet, and you go into the middle of the camp. And so it had to be done the way that God. So in the same way, Jesus then is the messianic fulfillment of that. And so we read then, for God in this manner, the word so is the word Greek word hutos, which doesn't mean magnified, it means in this manner. For God in this manner loved the world, just as the serpent was held up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So God in this manner loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life and so that leads us then into the application of it and that is that you either need to receive it or you need to reject it and that in and of itself is going to declare the motivations of your heart where you're either going to rebel or you're going to repent you're either going to change the way you think and accept what god says or you're going to say no i'm going to do it my own way and that leads to condemnation and so Jesus said in the midst of all that, he said, and this is the condemnation that men loved darkness rather than light. So the reality is that the rebellion, even if you want to go one step deeper, is because we actually love the darkness more than we love the light. And again, we're not going to dwell on that because we've got to move on. But for Bob, the, the, that's huge because it still plays out. The wages of death, or I'm sorry, the wages of death, the wages of sin is death. It's still death. It's not just a positional thing, the wages of sin is death, but they give to God as eternal life through Christ, Jesus Lord. But the reality is it's still a play. Every decision I make is a life and death decision. It really is. If you choose God, it, it fosters life. If you choose not God, just think logical statement, you know? Choose God, life. Choose not God, death. It's just it, how it plays out. So even as a believer, it still happens. It doesn't mean I'm condemned. It doesn't mean I lose my salvation. It means the fact that it, it separates me and my fellowship with God. There's a, there's a death that kind of occurs. John continues this discussion. Um, John the Apostle, the writer of this gospel, continues this discussion by now recounting um, a situation that occurred along the Jordan River um, at Anon, which was near Salim, where John the Immerser, John the Baptizer, John, the one who was baptizing, John, the one who was immersing, um, was immersing, baptizing at Anon because there was not just water. There was a lot of water. We're going to come to that in a moment because that's an aside that we've got to take. He was baptizing, but while he was then baptizing, while he was immersing them, then there began this discussion, this battle that, w- that came up because of um, he was, and then people found out that Jesus' disciples were now immersing and, and, and baptizing over in Judah as well. And they wanted to find out, well, what do you got to say about that? There's always people who want to cause division. You know? What do you got to say about that? Well, I told you before. He is above me. This is all about the supremacy of Christ. He's above me. He must increase. I must decrease. It's all about Jesus. It's nothing about me. I am only the herald. We'll talk about all this in just a second. But this just, I'm, just, I'm just a friend. I'm just a herald. I'm a nothing. It's all about him. But the context of the discussion comes as a result of baptism. And so we need to discuss this um, quickly. 
and I, this isn't the focus of this passage, and so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. So it's just an aside. So I'm putting everything up here so that we can fly through this. You can do a research on this later, okay? We talk about this enough when we do baptisms, and we'll talk about it again at the end of May when we have the um, baptisms at, at the character's house. Um, but the, the word literally itself is the Greek word baptizo. Bapto, baptizo, baptisma. You can hear the English word what? Baptize, baptizing, baptism, all in it. Because it's a transliteration of the word, not a translation of the word. The Greek word bapto, baptizo, baptisma, literally means to dip, dunk, or immerse. Or to be dip, dunked, or immerse. Or that thing of immersion. So the noun version of that, there was an immersion. Okay, And so you have all the... So these aren't all the... Um, accounts of that word in the New Testament. These are all the accounts in the New Testament where it's not used um, in the light of this ordinance baptism that we do. Does that make sense? Because you can't prove anything from that. Okay. So, for example, um, commentators, when they come to this passage, that John was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was a lot of water there. Okay, If they don't, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to sound like I'm being rude and crude and cruel and all this kind of stuff, but I don't know what else to do other than just say, look, the word of God is pretty clear here. And if you don't, you don't see it this way, I'm not quite sure. And I'm going to explain why they don't see it this way. Because they already believe in ch- uh, infant baptism. Okay, So if you believe in infant baptism, you've got to explain this away. There's a reason, right? So do you know why he was baptizing where there was a lot of water? Because there was a lot of pe- he was expecting a lot of people, and he was expecting people with sh- you know shepherds who were going to be bringing their flocks and everything, and so they were going to need a lot of water in order to be able to you know take care of the, the people. Had nothing to do with the what he was going to do. Had everything to do with having water for the people. I think what, what about Jesus? We're not told that he was baptizing where there was a lot of water just because he had. A- Anyways, my my point is that's coming up with a an excuse. It's very clear how it stated he was baptizing near Anon because there was a lot of water. The, the whole the lot of water goes with the act of what? Baptizing. It has nothing to do with feeding them. Okay? So, and if you go to these passages, and I don't have time to go to them, but you're going to see every one of those have to do with the word is used in a non-ordinance sense, and you're going to see that the word means to literally to, to wash something, to dunk it, to, to, to immerse it so that it can be cleansed, okay, in some manner, okay? Then, even more powerful is the Old Testament. Look at all these places in the Old Testament. See, baptism wasn't an ordinance in the Old Testament. And so, you can go to what's called the Septuagint. You see that sometimes as an LXX, okay? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made in the time of Jesus, okay? It was a little bit before Jesus' day, okay? But, What's good about that is you can go there and you can see what did the people in Jesus' day understand about that Greek word. Does that make sense? So if you go to these passages, now there's some other passages where it's in the Septuagint, but it's a different verse in the Old Testament. So I want to make sure that if you're able to go to the, the Septuagint and you're able to go to the Old Testament, you'll be able to look those things together, okay? And so if you go to every one of these, and I challenge you to do that. I'm not trying to hide anything. That's, that's, they're all there, Okay. You're going to find, again, that it means to dip, dunk, or immerse. In fact, there are actually, I, I take that back, there are a lot more. I, I, there would have been like triple of that, and so I kept it down. But you can keep looking at them, okay? Look it up on eSword, check me out on that, paint by numbers if you want, right? And you can find it, okay? They're all there, but literally, I mean, so like Joshua 3.15. Anybody know what happens in Joshua 
This is kind of fun. Ah, close. They didn't bring the wall down yet. It was before they brought the wall down. Crossing the river. Okay, so it's the crossing the river. So what do you think happens in John or Joshua 3.15? Ah, what do the priests do? Do you remember what it literally says? No, they didn't step in the water. They dipped their toe in the water. That's the word. They immersed their toe. They dipped their toe in the water. You don't hear anointing there. You don't see sprinkling there. You don't see pouring there. In fact, if you go to Leviticus chapter 4, that's the passage I go to all the time when I talk about um, baptism as in immersion from the perspective of baptism, that all four verbs are there with what the, um, the priest does with the blood. The priest uh, uh, dips his finger in the blood, then he sprinkles the blood seven times upon the altar, and then he takes some of the blood and he anoints the four horns of the altar, and then he pours the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. There's four verbs that are used in regard to the, the blood. There's, he dips his finger, he sprinkles it, he anoints it, and he pours it. That happened to be the four different modes of, quote-unquote, baptism today. Only one of those is the Greek word, baptizo, in the Septuagint. It's the word to dip, okay? So the meaning of the word literally means to dip, dunk, or immerse. I believe he was there where there was a lot of water because he was going to dunk them under the water, okay? Um, the meaning of the imagery, the de- debate was concerning purification. Again, these are all terms now than where that concept is being played out. Um, Acts 2 is not on here because you don't necessarily see it uh, specifically there, but, but you do. In Acts chapter 2, it's Pentecost, okay? And, and Peter is proclaiming Christ to all the people who are there. And, but when he's done, the people say to him, what must we do to be saved? What's his response to them? Not, wasn't belief. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be immersed in the name of Christ. There on Solomon's porch, on the southern end of the temple, there were steps... Maybe I should have had a picture up here. I've been there. I think, Chuck, you've been there. Steve, were you there? Okay. So several of you have been there. On either side of the steps, there are what's called McVeighs. Okay. Um, they're like small cisterns, if you would. Okay. But they weren't there to hold water for you to drink from. They were baptistries, if you would. In the, they were McVeighs, Hebrew. Okay. But they were cleansing places so that as you would come to the temple you would be able to symbolically, um, ceremonially purify yourself by dunking yourself into the water. They'd go straight down this way, um, but dunk themselves in the water, and that would uh, picture to everybody around their heart's desire to be cleansed from their sin as they went in before God so that they were holy before the Lord. Um, we go backwards like this. You don't have to. But the idea is, Romans chapter 6 tells us the imagery as well, then is not just purification, but it's the, that we're, we're aligning ourselves with Christ, the purification that we have in Jesus, that we're, we die with Christ, and then we rise with him from the dead. And so we, we're, 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 we die, we go into the grave, we're cleansed, and we come up from the, from the tomb. So, so that's just a little aside, okay? We can talk about that more, but there's a lot of verses. You can check that out, okay? Again, this is a side. I want to handle it but I want to handle it as a side because I want to move on to what the passage really is about, and that is it's about the supremacy of Christ. 
And we see this supremacy of Christ in two ways. The, the, again, the overarching bulk of this is all about then um, the declarations of John the Baptist regarding who he is and regarding who Jesus is. And then finally, in the very end of the chapter, then we have the statements either coming from John the Baptist, but probably more likely written by John the Apostle regarding the declarations of our salvation. Okay? But first, let's talk about those declarations that, that come from the humility, if you would, of John the Immerser. Because think about it. If anybody had an opportunity to be proud about his office, about who he was, be John the Baptist. I mean, he was miraculously born as well. I mean, remember, the, the angel came to his father, Zacharias. His mother was beyond the age of childbearing. And the angel came to Zacharias and said, Elizabeth's going to have a baby this time. And so, and, and Zacharias didn't believe it, and so he was made mute. And then he was told that the boy's name would be John, and that he would be, not, not blind, but he would be the voice of the one crying out of the wilderness, and that he would be the, the forerunner of Yahweh himself, of the Messiah to come, and who they would understand that Messiah was Yahweh in the flesh. Okay? And so if anybody had an opportunity to be proud, it would be John. But note what John says then in this passage as we go through this. Okay? First of all, he declares, he says, um, verse 27, John answered, um, and said, a man can receive nothing unless what? It has been given to him from heaven. So um, you have, again, verses on your, on your sermon note sheets, if you have that. Ephesians 4, 7, um, forward, go forward from there, talks about how Jesus is the one who gives the gifts to the churches. And so we read that, and so to some he gave apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints into the work of the ministry and so on and so forth. Okay? But in that as well, then the, the whole body is supposed to do its part. So we look a lot of times at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and we see that it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who gives the, the, those spiritual things, spiritual abilities and talents to the individual. But we're told as well that Christ, it's the whole Godhead that's involved in this. And so Christ himself is the giver of it. And John realized it. I mean, this is a pretty cool statement. I'm a nobody. All, only, the only things I have have been given to me from above. And so you have then on your sermon note sheet as well, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, where Paul says to the church of Corinth, what do you have that you did not receive? You, you don't, I mean, there is no reason for you to boast in anything that you are. So bring it to us today. Are you good at music? It's not for you to boast about. It's for you to glorify God in. Because any talent, any ability, any opportunity that you have has been given to you by, by God. And I don't mean to sound like a Calvinist on that one and, and everything is predestined. I'm just saying that God is the one who knits us together in our mother's womb. He makes us who we are. There is nothing special about Bob. God designed me. For a purpose. I just want to be able to fulfill it. God designed you. For a purpose. He has given you gifts. And abilities. Are you. Honestly. 
desiring to give him the glory in those and use them for his kingdom's purpose. That's basically what John's saying here. Look, don't look at me. Don't, don't, don't even be trying to cause division here because there's no division. It's all about Jesus. Only thing I have has been given to me from above. Jesus is, the Christ is the giver. Christ is the king. And so verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Messiah, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. I have been sent before him. And so he was the herald. There is heraldic imagery that is being portrayed here. And as he talked earlier, that if you consider the king when the king is coming, then there would always be a herald that would be sent before the king. Prepare the way the king is coming. Prepare the way the king is coming. That's who John was. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. That's what it literally says. And so who came? Yahweh in the flesh. Prepare the way of the king. I'm a nobody. I am just the herald. Think about that. You could say, wow, that's really cool. You're the herald for the king. Well, you're, the herald was a nobody. The herald was a nobody. It wasn't all about the herald. Well, the herald's here. Let's great. Let's have a party. No, it's all about, whoa, the herald's here. We better start getting ready because what? King's coming. Nothing to do with the herald. Are you a herald of the king? You yourself bear me witness that I am not the Messiah, but only sent before the Messiah. Is that you? I'm not it. I'm not the center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around me. Rather, I'm placed in this earth to bear witness of the king that they might be ready to meet the king. Because one day, every single knee is going to bow to the king. They will either bow under pure submission and desire or under oppression and judgment. Christ is the bridegroom. Verse 29, he says, He who has the bride, that's a cool statement. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. Do you get it? The liberals don't understand that passage. That's why they want to make Jesus having a wife. Because they don't understand who the bride is. Who's the bride? We are. Yeah, the church. How cool is that? I mean, this is before the church, theoretically, was physically in existence. And John's declaring, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. I'm neither. Do you get this? John is neither part of the church, nor is he the bridegroom. We were told in other places, in... Um, uh, probably there in Matthew eleven eleven, if you if you go there later, where Jesus is talking about John. What did you go into wilderness to see, right? And he says, among the prophets, there's none greater. But he is less than even the least of those in the kingdom of God. Isn't it amazing? I mean, here's John. He is the one preparing the way, and yet he's going to die before he has a chance to be a part of that 
bride that he's preparing everybody for. I'm just a friend. That's all I am. I'm just the friend. He doesn't even say he's the best man. Make me think of our imagery, right? I mean, you got your guys who are going to be your groomsmen, right? But among your groomsmen, you have a what? A best man. And everybody knows he's the best man. He gets to hang out next to you. He's the one at the, uh, at the, the dinner is going to do the speech, if there's going to be a speech. Make sense? John says, I'm, I'm just a friend. I'm just a friend. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the bride. What about you? How do you feel about Christ when it comes to that? And then he says, this passage that has been so impactful to me for many, many years. Just very small, very simple. He must increase. And I must decrease. You could end it right there. That sums up sanctification. He must increase. And in doing so, I must decrease. I must decrease. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? And I don't do the things I do want to do. I find out what? There's a war in me. To want to do with the flesh is within me. And yet the desire to live in the spirit is within me as well. In that moment, Romans 7 moment, when I'm battling those two sides of me, in the end, what is the decision point? He must increase. I must decrease. I have to choose life over death. I have to choose God over flesh. It's a decision. Every single moment of my day, I have to make the decision. Who am I seeking to promote? I'm telling you, it's hard, especially as, when you speak. I just want to be invisible. There are times when I'd like to preach from the back so people aren't looking at me. They have people sing specials from the back so people aren't looking at them. Because we battle with that. I struggle with those prayer videos on YouTube. You know, looking at the analytics and stuff like that. It's a battle. Is it about him? Or is it about me he must increase i must decrease john understood that think about what we read about the ministry of john low level hardly anybody came is that right it's not the way it was rather people came in droves to him and yet he knew think about this how long was his ministry for give me give me a ballpark how long do you think his ministry was for a few months six months weeks 
I'm going to go six months, maybe a year. I mean, it depends whether he started a little bit earlier and whether there was overlap with Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. Six months older. So according to the Jewish tradition, you, until you were 30, you really weren't being able to have a teaching ministry. So if he began, if, I mean, I understand this conjecture, if he began when he was 30, he probably lived out into the, into the wilderness with the Essenes and probably was living that um, Nazaritic lifestyle, okay? And probably, probably had a name, but probably he didn't come out and boom, this public ministry until he was about 30. When did Jesus begin his public ministry? At 30. Could you imagine that? What a rocket ship ride. Mega church, immediately. Went out there, people came in droves, had, had people coming. But to know all the while, this is only going to last 12 months at a max. Because all I'm here to do is promote the next guy. I'm looking forward to when we're, we get to plant churches. I'm looking forward to being able to develop and see other guys take over. I know my pride's going to struggle. Just honest, right? I mean, we talk about Sunday school. I can say that because you're all stinking prideful, prideful too. Okay? You all struggle with selfishness and self-centeredness and pride. It's okay. So I know. That as much as I want that in my spirit, that in that day when things are really becoming handed off, you know, that there's going to be part of me that's going to say what? Well, I wouldn't do it that way. It's okay. I'm looking. If you want to do the bulletin, you can feel free to do the bulletin. But if you do the bulletin, you're going to cause me struggles. Okay? But I want you to do the bulletin. I want somebody to do the bulletin. It's really okay. Because in the end, you're going to do it differently than me. And so you're not going to do it right. <laughs> we laugh, but that's the case, right? He must increase i must decrease it's got to be my mantra humility i've got to be done there's nothing about bob bob's got to be out of the picture jesus has got to be soul and then christ is above all and he says this a couple different times in the same passage he who comes from above is what Above all, he who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And I love it. Um, again, in the Greek, the word for above is the word ano. And there is um, a play going on in this whole thing. And so he who comes from Above, okay, so it's a, a form of ano. Um, he who comes from above is eponym, epano. And so, like epicenter, so when you have the center of something, it's what? It's the middle of it, right? So what's the epicenter? It's like really the center. Make sense? So not just a, well, kind of like this is the middle of it, but this is the, the very exact dead center, okay? So, epiano. So, really from above, okay? So, he who comes from above is what? Really above all. He who is of the earth is earthly. Speaks of the earth. Who's he talking about? He who is of the earth is from the earth. Speaks earthly. Who is he talking about? 
Himself. Yeah. Wow. He's talking about himself. And then he says, he who comes from heaven is what? Again, epano. Really above all. We're going to end with the song, Above All. Okay? And we can sing about it. But again, I have to ask myself, is Jesus really sovereignly, supremely over all things to Bob? Is what he wants more important than what I want? Because there's a lot of things I want sometimes. But am I willing to sacrifice that in order to choose what he wants? I am of the earth. And I know that if I do it on my own, I will speak how? Of the earth. But I want to be spiritual. So take this all in context again, okay? Because we go all the way back to the conversation with Nicodemus, okay? I know I am spirit, and I want to speak of spirit things. But that's only going to happen when I, Colossians chapter 3, set my mind on things above, when I consider the things that are in the heavenlies. I've got to focus on Jesus. I've got to look to Jesus. I've got to set my mind on Jesus in order that I can really, truly, honestly speak of the things that are from above. Because that's where he's from. Then we get to the very end of the passage where we have the declarations regarding our salvation. Beginning at verse 32, we read, In what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. First of all, Christ has been given all things by the Father. We go all the way up here. Christ is the gifter. What do you have that what? You have not received. Well, this is kind of pretty cool because, again, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the hierarchy of authority, right? That uh, God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of man and man is the head of woman, right? But so we have Christ giving gifts up here, but then all of a sudden we find out that Christ has been given all things by the Father. Okay? So you have the supremacy. How many things was Christ given? All things. You were given talents. You were given abilities. But Christ was given everything. And in that then, he then becomes the key. I capitalize it for a reason. He becomes the key to everlasting life. No other key. You can have faith. By grace, you are saved through what? Faith. Wow, that's good. So I have faith in that pile of gravel out there. But a pile of gravel is not what? It's not getting me into any place. So it's not just that you're saved by faith, but you're saved by faith in the proper thing that God has established. And that is that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, 
the perfect sacrifice who died on the cross for you to pay the penalty of your sins. And then he rose again on the third day. He had the ability and the power to conquer death. And in that then, he became the perfect savior, the perfect redeemer. He's the linchpin. He's the key. You believe in Christ? You have everlasting life. You reject Christ? Everlasting condemnation. Yeah, because everybody's going to live forever. The question is where you're going to live. You can either go through the door. Jesus said, I am the what? The door. You have on your sermon note sheet the quote from Revelation where Jesus says, I have the key. I have the key to heaven and to Hades. He holds the key. He's the doorman, if you would. You want to be in the presence of God? You've got to go through Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's not any of the, the gods of Hinduism. It's not even ourselves. Again, it's God's plan done God's way. I don't have an option in it. And so I look around and I say, I'm preaching to the choir. This, everybody gets this. But if you're here and you don't get it, you've got to get it. It all boils down to this one thing. You either believe Jesus or you don't believe Jesus. So in the end, who is Jesus to you? That's been the same first question the last couple of weeks. It's going to continually be there. Because that's really where it boils down to here. Who is Jesus to you? Are you seeking to allow Christ to increase in your life while humbling yourself? Again, I'm not asking you that question. That, this is self-reflection moment, and this is you know monopoly. I get to play the, the share the wealth card. You know, or is that no? That's life. That's the life game, isn't it? Share the wealth card, whatever, whichever one that is. But I'm sure, playing it out there. What next step are you willing to take in order to allow Christ to increase in your life? Note, there's more space for that question on your sermon note sheet. I'm pausing a little bit longer. Because it's not just a yes-no, is it? Because if your heart's desire is for him to increase and you to decrease, what's your next step? What are you willing to do? Are you willing to spend more time in his word? Are you willing to literally physically start bowing your knee? I mean, I understand some may be physically not able to do it. Are you literally, you know, because sometimes, again, that's a, a pride problem too. I'm not willing gonna, really going to bow my knee, literally bow my knee before the Lord. I'll just bow my knee in my heart. And we say, well, you know, but think about that. It starts to become a pride thing at that moment, too. But we're, God's word talks about bowing before him. And sometimes our physical position helps our mental position. What are you willing to do to start humbling yourself before God so that he might be increased in your life? <coughs> Have you truly believed on Jesus as Messiah and the salvation? Has he changed your life? For some, again here, Maybe this is you. It's a, it's a salvation moment. And I call upon you to be able to call upon him today. And then finally, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true, that it's quick, that it's powerful, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, through your word, 
you use it to divide us asunder between our soul and our spirit, between our bone and our marrow. You use it as a discern, being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would use your word, even some of these passages that we might just read through, Lord, to realize how important they are and why they've been included in your body of truth. Lord, I do pray that you'd help me, as well as these others, to have a true desire to have you increase in their life and for us to be decreased. For you to be magnified, Lord, and for us to become more and more invisible in the eyes of men. Lord, those things that need to be removed, Lord, allow it to be like a chaff which the wind drives away. Help us to humbly accept the areas of our life that you want to work on and to be willing to be filleted open before you that we might become more and more conformed to the image of Christ, that you might be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.